Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast, where we introduce you to new ways of thinking and deeper insights on the world of strategy. So the tech world has been in the news a lot. I mean, they're always going to be in the news if you consider that the tech world is just starting. So while we like to think of Apple and Facebook as these giant behemoths, we've got to remember that in 10, 15, 20 years, they may not even be around anymore. Someone's going to take their place. I know it's, it's hard to think about that, but that's true. That's how free markets work. The behemoths that ran the world of tech before, whether it's IBM, whether it's HP, whether it's Yahoo, whether it's AOL. I mean, I don't even know if anyone talks about them anymore. I've not seen anything about IBM on the front page of a newspaper unless it's another, and I'm sorry to say this, I know a lot of IBM listeners, listen, it's another bad quarterly or revenue result. Hopefully they turn things around. It's a great company, one of the greatest companies in the world, and I'm sure they have a bright future ahead of them. However, let's get back into the topic, right? A lot is happening with tech. There are calls on one side that tech needs to be more highly regulated. There are calls on the other side that tech needs to be protected. So I think there is a consensus something needs to be done better with tech. But it's not just tech. I think any sector in the world, governments need to think of ways to manage them. So I think there we have an agreement around the world. The question becomes, how do you regulate tech? What is the best way to do this? On the one hand, people say tech companies have too much power. Now, a lot of people say this. In the podcast that's going to follow, I want to make this very clear. There is no evidence that tech companies are doing anything wrong with regards to privacy. There's no evidence they are reading emails. There's no evidence they are reading private messages. So if a statement is made that tech companies are probably doing that, we want to state for the record there's no evidence of that. Right? We need to be fair, impartial in the way we have these discussions and not put out things that, that could be incorrect because it becomes part of the narrative. So the question becomes, There's a group that wants to control tech because they think they have too much access to privacy in whatever way they interpret that to be. And there's another group which says tech is becoming too powerful. And because tech is becoming too powerful, we need to use their power to modify human behavior. And that's the big debate that's going on. And what I have here today is Ben Pring on the line. Now, Ben Pring was a senior executive at Cognizant, smart guy, spent most of his life in the tech sector. And him and a number of his colleagues have been putting together a thesis on how they think the tech sector needs to be regulated. Now, of course, when you listen to this, remember that it's a controversial topic. There's no right answers. Ben has some very valid points for what he wants to say. But On the other hand, there are equally valid points for not doing what he's proposing or finding some kind of common middle ground. There's one thing I want to add here that there are certain words and phrases used in this episode that may be unsettling to sensitive listeners. So if you are a sensitive listener or if you have children in the room or not sure whether to proceed, I want to say it's not 
offensive words, but for a sensitive listener who's not used to some of these topics, it could be disconcerting. So think about that as you proceed with this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. How are you? Hello there. Hi. Oh, you have a very nice accent. <laughs> Thank you. Where are you from? I'm from England. England, the Queen's England. Well, I'm really looking forward to speak to you today because I read your book this morning. I thought it's going to be a little bit of a boring book about technology, but my God, you want to start a fight with the whole tech companies. <laughs> so how many people are you expecting to unfriend you after this book becomes mainstream? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I may lose some friends, but I hope I'll gain some along the way as well. Well, I was thinking that you, Lena Khan, and Timothy Hu could go as the Avengers taking on the tech companies during Halloween. That's very funny. I was uh, I was chatting uh, online with Tim earlier this week. Yeah, that's quite cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you can tell him that Michael came up with this really cool idea for Halloween. I mean, the three of you, <laughs> Lena Khan can go as Wonder Woman, although it's not the Avengers, that's the Justice League, but it's close enough. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> okay, so I have a lot to talk about. I mean, it's quite an interesting book. Do you mind if we get straight into it? No, of course. Thank you so much. Okay, so when I was first reading this, because I read the summary a few weeks ago, and I like to read books the day I'm going to speak to the author because I want the ideas fresh in my mind. Mm. So I wanted to touch, look at this from the perspective of what it means from a macroeconomic perspective. Mm. Let's start there because a lot of what you are saying makes intuitive sense. But is it not too late, considering most of global usage is shifting towards Pacific Asia, and this is only for the American market? Are we not responding too late? Well, that's a very interesting question to start off with. Um... I thought I'd give you the easy question first. <laughs> No, it's super interesting. No, I mean, clearly technology is entirely central to geopolitics now. Yes. I think, you know, that's that's clear and obvious to anyone who's paying attention. And um, so those geopolitical struggles uh, of the next 20, 50, 100 years are all going to be fought uh, and competed uh, on around technology. And... Yes. Um, uh, so clearly in a globalized economy, a globalized world with globalized supply chains where all is fair in love and war uh, and all is fair in international trade, then, of course, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine that we're going to compete with other countries. America's going to compete with other countries. That, that's always been true and will, always will be true. We'll never have a uh, certainly not in the you know our lifetime and, and for probably you know, uh, hundreds of years, we won't have the sort of Starship Federation era of complete global harmony yeah. and, and complete global cooperation. So uh, if you accept that, then America and the West is in a geopolitical and a geoeconomic, um, a soft power competition increasingly with China. And, you know, we talk about... Um, uh, Nixon going to China in in the book and and, and how that was the calculus mm -hmm. yes. behind behind that hasn't really played out as as Nixon Kissinger imagined and so you know looked at completely neutrally and objectively there is fundamentally nothing wrong with China becoming a more uh, 
important player, a more equal player on the global stage. I think where people like us and many other commentators, um, you know, have a, a concern and I think legitimate issues is that um, the way the game is being played uh, by yes. uh, not, not just China, but by uh, uh, many countries now is somewhat, you know, questionable and dubious. And, and we raise this notion of surveillance communism in the book, mm -hmm. you know, the, like the Eastern it. version of surveillance capitalism that's sort of come to dominate Western societies. And um, I suppose you ultimately just have to pick your poison, don't you? Um, do you want to live in the, the worst of all possible socioeconomic systems i.e. capitalism, mm -hmm. except for all the others. Yeah. <laughs> or, or do you want to, as some people in the West, their sort of revulsion um, of, the, of the West and, and, and the, the you know, very noticeable and very real sort of corruption of the elites and that the, fi the fish is rotting from the head down, um, do you want to side with the Chinese version, which in some ways is more transparently, mm -hmm. nakedly uh, obvious the game that they're yes. playing without any of the sort of hypocrisy that some people believe is rife in the West, that they're just more, you know, obvious and transparent in, 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 the, in the rules of the game and the way they play it. So it's, it's clearly very complicated. Yes. It's hard, it's hard to um, see much honor amongst thieves. Yeah on either side but i suppose ultimately uh, paul rorig uh, my co-author who's american myself was a brit living in america for a long time we sort of feel well <laughs> uh you know we sort of know which side we're on yes um and for all its faults and all of its um compromises we think the model that we have here in the west probably you know is the better one so in putting together this manifesto, let's call it a manifesto for change, was the underlying principle that this is about bringing power to consumers in the West? Or was this about making tech more globally competitive in the United States? Yes. No, again, that's very well framed. Um, again, the calculus of Nixon going to China was that the, the, the East would become more like the West as they became yes. more of a consumer society, as they became um, more like us, that they would adopt our cultural mores, our, um, our societal mores. They would become uh, more integrated and, and, and clearly... 40, 50 years after that calculus was thought of, that that isn't really the case. Yes. Um, and in fact, uh, the sort of recolonization of Africa and other parts of the world through Belt and Road and Belt and Road and Code, yeah. um, you know, China wants in a way to make the world more like it rather than yes. uh, it become more like the the first world and the the g7 led world and again that's if you're of a dark persuasion uh you know dark mentality mm -hmm. i mean um if you're sort of somewhat pessimistic and 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 um dystopian about this this is in a way uh and why we why we talk about war in the book because this is going to be the next big 
war, whether fought, fought directly or through proxies in other parts of the world, this is going to be the, the, the big fault line, the big tension, the big, the big um, struggle in the next uh, part of this century. Uh, again, you can obviously think about the historical parallels yes. of the American century, if you like, the 20th century and the transition of power from the UK, from the British Empire into America, the, 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 the rise of Germany as an independent national state and and its attempts to find its way in the world in, in the First and the Second World War. And so these big macro um, tectonic shifts, if you like, I mean, that's what we're on the cusp of now. And, and in the previous eras, those tectonic sh uh, plates have shifted around control of natural assets, oil, clearly, uh, minerals, coal, um, uh, gold, but now the next tectonic shift is all going to be around control of technology. And so that's why you see, again, the uh, anxieties and concerns about Huawei in Western supply mm -hmm. chains in, in security based supply chains and why Taiwan has suddenly become, you know, yes. uh, sort of ground central for all of this tension, um, because the, the, in the fourth industrial revolution, control is is going to be expressed and manifest through control of technology. I mean, Putin famously said a couple of years ago, uh, the country that controls AI will control the world. So let's expand on what you said, and you explained it very well, right? You know, to quote Ronald Reagan, he said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> <laughs> so as a build-up to my next question is, I agree with what you're saying. You know, we have three actors here. Let's let's leave out other countries for a second. We have consumers, we have the tech companies, and we have the government, right? So we have three actors. Mm. What you're advocating, and you you know, advocated very well, is that the government should have a stronger role in managing how data is managed and who has control of that data. So while I agree with you that consumers should have more control. Is that a role for government to play? Is it a role of managing it or regulating it? Well, um, again, you know, interesting to bring um, President Reagan into this. I knew because, you'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> because in a way, technology has grown in, in, in the era of Reagan, yes. hasn't it? Really, that notion of the hands-off, laissez-faire, Mm -hmm. um, libertarian approach to uh, markets and to uh, regulation and particularly to cyberspace. I mean, there was a sort of collision between the utopian, the techno utopians of of the of um, the homebrew club and, yeah. and the first waves of technology, and a government that was very happy to uh, take their hands off and and allow. Um, you know, unfettered, uncontrolled mm -hmm. innovation, disruption um, to occur. And, 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 and clearly, again, uh, there was logic to that. It, there was, it, that in itself was a reaction to um, perhaps uh, an over-involved mm -hmm. government in the West. Um, but I think, again, what we're arguing in our book is whilst that philosophy and that approach 
may have been appropriate and indeed sensible in the late 70s into the early 80s, it's not appropriate and sensible in 2021. Um, because that that um, laissez-faire approach, whilst it's wrought innovation and a huge explosion in economic growth, we can also see uh, what that disruption, what that uh, fail, um, move fast and break things approach has also wrought in terms of um, addiction to technology. Yes. Um, ch tr children who are introduced to technology at 13 and completely absorbed, completely addicted to it, bullying off the charts, suicide off the charts, um, body dysmorphia mm -hmm. off the charts, all sorts of negative consequences. And again, as a, as a rational person, you, me, anybody reading this, we've got to be honest about this and, and recognize that uh, we've steered too far to the right, if you like. Mm -hmm. That, you know, again, if you put it into the sort of ship of state uh, metaphor, we were perhaps going too far to the left to port a generation or two ago. We're going too far to uh, to um, starboard now, too far to the right. And so, again, what we're arguing in our book is that we need to, uh, you know, change course again to get this ship of state back into a more central uh, course. And again, the notion that you can steer a ship or a sh or the ship of state only in one direction, only to port or only to starboard, to us is just illogical. And mm -hmm. so the ideologues who think, oh, we've got to continue to be completely hands off and completely allow the tech companies to do whatever the hell they want. And we, we can't afford to uh, risk uh, destroying the, killing the golden goose. We can't. Uh, run the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Again, to us, that's illogical. That's just uh, an ideologue position rather than a practical, reasonable, um, mature approach, which says, yes, of course we need innovation. We need the, the engine, the accelerator, but we also need some brakes. <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors no, here. It's a good metaphor. chips and cars, but and we need some brakes so we don't, you know, we don't kill ourselves in the process, and that's kind of what we're doing. So, so going back to your original, you know, framing of it, of course, uh, the consumer has huge power, and and uh, you know, the consumer expresses that power at the ballot box, at the checkout counter, and in every click and like and swipe they they do, um, and 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 um, we've got to obviously, you know, continue to put the the consumer the the citizen right in the middle of everything we do. But we know that the the regulatory legislative frameworks, the rules of the game that politicians craft at our behest as as citizens, that's also important. And so mm -hmm. that that ecosystem, as you frame it, which is very, very well framed, is always a very de delicate mm -hmm. ecosystem. But the notion that you you can't do anything to touch it uh, we, again, we just don't buy that logic. Yeah, I would say there's two things here that fall on your side. One is, in fairness, what you're advocating, we do that in the medical sector, we do it in the aerospace sector, where we have government agencies playing a role of partial management, but regulating and legislating, and it works well.
So on that side, that's good. You also timed the release of the book very well when there's a very receptive administration in power. So well done <laughs> on that. But let's think about some of the things that are being advocated. And I'm not saying that you know one is good or one is bad. I think that you know as you use the example of Nixon and Kissinger, the law of unintended consequences means we really don't know how things will play out, right? But let's look at something like overruling anonymity in the for-profit social and media platforms. Wouldn't that hand more data and more power to tech companies? Um, well, I don't think that would be the unintended consequence, or I don't think that would be a unwelcome consequence. Again, we're not trying to argue in our work that technology needs to be stopped or mm -hmm. or or, or um, tech companies are too powerful. I mean, we say nothing about sure. the, the logic of, you know, breaking them up. I mean, we don't really think that would make much difference. And mm -hmm. I think it would, um, that would, would have uh, a lot of consequences. But, but the notion of anonymity, which again was part of the original techno-utopian yeah. vision of cyberspace, again, it, it played its role. We're not denying that. It was a part of allowing this little seedling to flourish. Mm -hmm. But again, in 2021, to imagine that this anonymity is some sacrosanct, untouchable thing, it just seems ridiculous because we can see the damage that is being done mm -hmm. at, a, at an individual level, young kids, uh, QAnon, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in yeah. all aspects, there's some it's dark corners of the internet. It's it's a madness. It's a madness, and 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 the notion that we can't uh, verify people, we can't have ownership of speech, which again we we believe is the responsibility that comes with the right of free speech. Again, it just it seems extraordinary that um, that that is to some people sacrosanct because. We can clearly see this is this is just a untenable, um, unsustainable position at the moment. So I think we have to grapple with the, the mm -hmm. reality that that the anonymity is is past its sell by date, and if we want this thing to remain in any way a force for good, we have to we have to change the rules of the game uh, because. Uh, the, the path we're on and this sort of hands-off approach that the social media companies are saying that we can't be held responsible, we, there's no way we can police that, and, and then offering up sort of half measures and half solutions as a something of a smokescreen. Again, it's just, I think, uh, reasonable people are beyond that point now. I mean, we're mm -hmm. just, I personally am just fed up with this and sick of it and just think this is ridiculous. So let's take a worst case scenario and play this out, right? Yeah. So obviously, American tech companies are enormously successful around the world. They've laid the infrastructure for social media. In many cases, they are almost operate like a monopoly, right? In some parts of the world, citizens have no choice but to be anonymous to say what they want because they live in a repressive regimes. How would that play out? How would not granting them that anonymity, what effect would that have? Um, no, that's a very good question, and it's a very difficult question. And, and again, I'm not um, saying we know, have the answers. It's just good to think about. No, 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 no. It's a very, and we have we thought long and hard about this because we realised this was a this was a pretty uh, bold statement, a pretty bold position to take. And you're absolutely right. In parts of the world, um, 
that anonymity uh, is uh, is valuable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think there are limits to the framing that we can offer in the world. There isn't mm -hmm. a one size fits all solution. Okay, clearly, you know, clearly we, the authors, uh, are looking at this within a Western context. We're looking at this within a, a G10, a G15 context. Um, uh, trying to find that one size fits all solution for for the entire world again is that is probably unrealistic. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I, I think I completely understand where that question is coming from, and uh, and that would in, uh, produce some negative consequences for for folks in that situation. But again, uh, on the balance of things, on balance of the world that you know, you and I live in and the audience that you and I are really addressing, I think our solution, our suggestion is appropriate um, and reasonable and um, timely. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not this doesn't work for other parts of uh, other parts of the world, well, that's a, a sort of another consideration that, that, that we're not really factoring into what we're recommending for America, for the UK, for Europe. Uh, that, that sort of G10, G15 um, audience that we're talking to. Okay, that makes sense. But I think that's something that U.S. government and tech companies would need to take it in consideration because they play such an influential role globally. Generally, what we do here sets the standard and if Twitter is the only social media option in some repressive state, it's going to have the law of unintended consequences. I mean, the other, the other way of thinking about it is that um, these social media platforms mm -hmm. Uh, which are very dominant, as you say, are not the only ones. Yes. And um, uh, if if they begin to adopt um, verification, then perhaps some other platforms uh, spring up and they become anonymous. And, um, uh, you know, the audiences that need to use things for different platforms, you know, go to those different um go to those different platforms. I mean, clearly already, uh, you know, most most baddies, most bad actors are not on public social media platforms uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, now yeah. because they know the security services are monitoring them. Um, they're very deep in the dark web. They're using, you know, fully encrypted uh, technology. So, you know, in a way that sort of sorting, that separation has already occurred. And, you know, I, I, we get this question a lot, and I always say that if we believed that we couldn't police anything, mm -hmm. we wouldn't write any rules. Mm -hmm. if, if, we, if, we, if we fundamentally, as people of goodwill, believed it was impossible to stop kids drinking, we wouldn't have... Uh, That's a good uh, point drinking prohibition laws we just say oh we'll do it anyway so why why bother to have a law yeah. if we believed if we believed that we couldn't stop people driving 100 miles an hour we wouldn't bother to have any laws the fact that we can't always enforce those laws perfectly isn't a logical argument not to have those laws in the first place that's kind of how i, how I look at it well, clearly, it's going to spark a lot of interesting conversations. That's clear <laughs> to me. But but let's go through some of these points. They're very interesting, and most of them are very well thought out, and I want to unpack them, right? So point number six, which is a big one, repealing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, 
which you obviously know more about this than I do, but my understanding is that online platforms are not legally liable for what people post on that platform. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Now, that's going to cause a fight. And I'm not saying anyone's right. It's just it's going to cause a fight because that underpins the economic model of every single social media company. Yes, and if you watch the testimony on the Hill yesterday, um, that's what uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai were basically saying, was that if you, if you repeal this, then you're going to blow up our economic model. Um, I don't believe that. I believe there are the technologies that allow Facebook to um, have 2.7 billion active users per month. The same technology can be used to police that environment, that that their commons, if you like, much more than they're doing at the moment. And 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 I was quoted in the media this morning saying that the half me measures they're uh, proposing are really simply that half measures and and something of a uh, of, of a smokescreen. Um, again, I think if you put this in a historical context, mm -hmm. that ruling and that approach was very sensible and very appropriate. But in 2021, it's not sensible, it's not appropriate. Of course, these organizations, these platforms are in essence publishers. Uh, they, are, they are private, you know, they're, they're, they are companies, they are offering a, an environment for, in essence, their members mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. operate. And members, organizations typically have rules, have uh, yes. uh, regulations Club. that they enforce. They enforce. If you join a golf club, if you join a political party, um, those organizations will enforce the rules. The notion that they have to offer complete free speech, again, is, is, a, is a logical sophistry, I think. Um, and so in 2021, of course, they're publishers. It's completely obvious they're publishers and they need to police what happens on their platforms. And if they, if, they, if they can't do that, if they don't do that, then they don't have the right infrastructure. And I think they can have the correct technical infrastructure. And if they don't uh, make um, uh, those efforts, if they don't uh, step up to this obligation, then I think the um, politicians, uh, the regulators, the, the umpires acting on our behalf have a complete legitimate right to, to act uh, on our behalf. You're definitely a Brit when you say umpires and not referees. <laughs> <laughs> but let's unpack this further, right? Because it's very interesting. So you're saying, and I think many people agree with you, that if, let's call them baddies, rather than pointing out anyone in particular, but if some baddies publish something, or let's say Facebook, for example. Facebook has a moral obligation to have it removed. Is that what we're saying? Yes. Because Facebook is allowing a bad, bad is maybe not the right word, but a message that should not be shared with the world that maybe causes problems, misinformation. Facebook has a moral duty to remove that. I think that part, I think everyone's going to agree with, right? Yes, yes. Now, what happens if two users communicate privately on Facebook? Does Facebook have a duty to then read private messages and remove it? Well, again, in the in the context of anonymity, there not being any anonymity on those sites. Uh, in but the it's context, a private message, it's not public viewing. In the context that 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 is in essence in the modern world a public space, then uh, then yes, they do, they should. Again, we're all for free speech, but if you go into Times Square or if you go into Trafalgar Square in London and you shout obscenities 
and you show pornography to people next Hope to not. you. <laughs> yes, it, of course. Well, the second I say that, it, it's completely obvious how inappropriate that would be. And and a policeman or a private citizen would be completely within their rights to say, uh, you know, stop it. Yeah. And if you don't, they'll probably tasing you or something like that. Yeah, you're you're under <laughs> you're, uh, you're under arrest. So the notion that in this cyberspace we completely slough off all of those um, appropriate rules and regulations that we have in the real world. That's my point. Is that you know in the old, in the very early original era of cyberspace to allow it to flourish, we sort of loosened things. We we said, okay, we're not quite sure what's going to happen here. Let's not over police it to begin with, because it would be interesting to see this develop. But now there's 2.7 billion people on mm -hmm. Facebook, and there are, it, so that it's like having 2.7 billion people in Trafalgar Square, and everybody's shouting obscenities and showing pornography to each other, and and dealing drugs and dealing. I mean, it's crazy. It's a madhouse, and and the notion that simply because there are so many people there mm -hmm. that they can't police it in, in any way, which is, is in essence the argument they 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 um, they make. It's just not inappropriate. It's just not appropriate. And and I would go even further mm -hmm. to say that if the if you can't police your uh, your dance club, if you can't uh, maintain order in your nightclub, if you can't maintain order in your golf club then the licensing regulatory bodies, whether whether it's the local selectmen or it's the, um, the national government, have a complete right to revoke your license and shut you down. Again, that's what happens in the real world, but somehow we've forgotten that in, in, in the online world. Mm -hmm. So I think that the essence of what you're saying makes sense. I think anyone's going to debate about the fact that we need to take measures to protect not just communities, children, and so on, right? But I think the part that, that maybe there's going to be some pushback on is that is the mechanism to police that worth the trouble it's going to cause? Are we saying that we're going to allow Facebook and Twitter to go through all private messages to prevent gator problems? I mean, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who once said that those who give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. So what are we letting out of the bag if we allow everything to be read? I mean, I don't have an answer, but it's a question worth asking. Do you believe in the essential liberty of you to share a, a photograph of your genitalia? Is that part of your essential liberty? Is that what Franklin had in mind? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. He didn't he didn't imagine that we would have an, a space where people were dealing drugs, people were uh, sharing pornography, people were abusing small children, people were making radical um, uh, terrorist statements. That, that's not what what essential liberty is all about. That's not what he had in his statement in his mind. Of course, governments have always policed behavior. Again, to, to imagine that they don't is naive and, 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 and not, not appropriate, not realistic. We as citizens, we as people of good faith, we elect politicians to enact laws to keep things like that at bay. The police is a good example, right? But don't you need probable cause before you can go into someone's home? 
would not the similar rules apply to going through private messages? Well, <laughs> because you first need to know something is happening before you go in. But what I'm worried about is tech companies are going to just do it anyway, carte blanche, to find the problem and snuff it out. That's well, uh, where the law steps in to say the police can. Well, do again, with this is where in, 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 yes, no, it's a very good point. And, and this is where in unpeeling this onion, it's so incredibly complicated. And makes you want to cry like a real onion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, uh, because you could argue, and I, I'm going to say this in, you know, coded legalese, yeah. um, allegedly, that's what social media companies are doing already. Mm. And there are um, government backdoors into social media platforms, allegedly, to do that already. So the notion that, um, in a way, those conversations, which are, as you're suggesting, private, mm. are truly private, is allegedly not uh, actually true either. Okay, so this is uh, a good point. Let's go down this path, right? Because it's an mm. excellent point. What you're saying is that if, if a company is allowing an algorithm to read your private messages and serve you adverts or whatever it is. If they're doing it already, why can't they do it in a way that's good is what you're saying? Exactly. That's very well put. Yes, exactly right. Not that we're accusing anyone of reading private messages, just so we're clear about that. We're saying if it is true, right? But we don't know. Yes, if it is true that allegedly... Um, government organizations can look at uh, information on social media platforms, then by definition, if they had a will to do so, they could uh, police this in a way much more, um, uh, what's the right, right word, in much more detail. Yes, exactly. That's exactly true. And again, this is why in <laughs> Unfeeling the Onion, yeah. it is so incredibly complicated because um, the, uh, again, and I'm going to couch this all in legalese sure. because it's a very, very um, difficult conversation to have mm -hmm. in, in, in public, is that the, the companies that we are talking about um, the platforms we are talking about, much of the underlying technology that is at the heart of those platforms is at the heart of platforms that the government has for national security mm -hmm. uh, technologies that they operate. Yes. Um, people may know, may, may know, excuse me, may know the name Peter Thiel mm -hmm. and the name Alex Karp. Yes, yes. And if well. you know who those people are, then you know that basically uh, the technologies that uh, 2.7 billion people in the world access to share cat videos are the same technologies that run the uh, systems that Edward Snowden exposed. Okay. Um, so it's extraordinarily complicated, and um, uh, uh, it's almost like a house of mirrors. Once you start walking down that corridor, uh, you look at look at one mirror and see three other mirrors in, in its reflection. So let's step out of this conversation to maybe shift gears a little bit, right? I think everyone's going to agree with you certain things on the internet need to be policed certain things are just not pleasant to look at hear about and no one should see it right there's not going to be much dispute about these black and white areas but if you give an organization 
the power to police something that's black and white. That's easy to support. But there are many things that are gray areas that are not that offensive to everyone and maybe mildly irritating. Who decides that? I mean, because if we say there's going to be a federal technology association, a government cannot do anything. It's an article of Congress. It's going to be staffed by someone who has to make these calls and decisions. How do we know when we get to the gradation of what needs to be removed? It's not going to be abused. Yes, well, again, that's a very good point. And, and that's why the first uh, recommendation in our book is the establishment of, of uh, as you just mentioned, a federal technology administration uh, or a federal technology agency. Because if you look at the remits of the FTC and sure. the FCC at the moment, they really don't mention anything we're talking about at all. It's much more that sure. notion of, of competition, of monopoly. They, they don't really have a charter to go after any of these complexities that we're talking about. So we think having a, uh, a government agency with a charter to uh, adjudicate, to address, to advise uh, the, uh, the, the three uh, um, legs of government, if you like, the three pillars of government, it, it would be a, a positive step forward. I mean, again, we were informed in our thinking by that famous moment when uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was on Congress, uh, in front of Congress a couple of years ago, when a, a senator said to him, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg, what's your business model? You know, Senator, we sell ads. 